Greetings, PPL Familia. Uh, this is Paul Williams, President and CEO of Project for Pride and Living. Welcome to the Race, Place, and Policy podcast. PPL has created this space as a way of engaging with our community on a wide range of issues, impacting our work in housing, employment, and community building uh, on a daily basis. It's our firm belief that the complex issues around race, place, and policy in particular are central to this dialogue. So we thank you for joining us. This month, our conversation is about opportunity and, and innovation, particularly in the world of community development. I'm joined by Tanya Allen, the president of the McKnight Foundation and a big part of the Emerging Groundbreak Coalition. Welcome, Tanya. Great to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me, Paul. And I just want to say uh, thank you so much um, for just being a leader. And it's no surprise to me that you were uh, acknowledged as one of the most admired CEOs by the business magazine here. So I just want to say congratulations and thank you for all of your efforts in community development and racial equity, because well, if leaders like you, we're going to be a better and stronger place, a more pluralistic society. Yes. Well, thank you, Tanya. I appreciate that. A nice plug there for the for uh, for PPL and for my work. I really appreciate it. Um, so actually, Tanya, I want to start by by just talking about your background and kind of what brought you to this work. Um, so just tell us a bit about uh, about kind of your background and, and, and in particular, your your transition to the Twin Cities and your kind of your passion for community. Yeah, no, thanks for that question. So I am a Detroit girl. I grew up in Detroit and spent most of my life there. So I think it was as much of a surprise um, for me as many others when I moved to the Twin Cities, because I thought that my life was really going to be committed to Detroit's revitalization. And that really came out of uh, really being by the side of my grandmother as a young child. My grandmother was a community organizer. Um, she would uh, organize block clubs. She would work with the local community development organizations as a volunteer. She would open her house um, to our neighbors who were in deep need. And I will tell you this because uh, what's so striking to me about that is that most people would have defined her as a person that was in deep need. Um, but mm. she had an abundance of love and an abundance of um, appreciation and value for other people. And so I learned that being right by her side. And that was um, basically what I felt like I was called to do um, as well. So when I, mm. Uh, went to college, I uh, thought like, you know, my goal would be, you know, I could be a doc, you know, I wanted to be a doctor. And um, I had this conversation about like, is my goal really to help one person at a time? Or was it the goal really to try and figure out like, how do we create and make change at a broader level? Um, so that we really are dealing with the, um, issues that were affecting people at a broader level. And, um, and so I decided that, you know, <laughs> to my mother's dismay, <laughs> right at the end, I postponed my um, acceptance into medical school and said I was going to go into thinking about social work and public health, these broad population changes and the like. Now, I will tell you, she has been upset with me for a long time. But I didn't <laughs> I'm guessing a, she damn well fell off her title. chair. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I got an honorary PhD, so I, I don't know if that counts for her, but 
<laughs> but I tried to. So anyway, um, so it ended up pushing me to um, work in Detroit. Uh, I led the Skillman Foundation for 16 years. And during that time, I did a lot of work on education, a lot of work on community development, where we targeted six neighborhoods in Detroit for 10 years, trying to make outcome, create space. Um, and so it really pushed me to say, I have to do something different. I have to bring my talents um, to the work in a different way. And um, the opportunity to come lead McKnight, who was on the who's on this cusp of being, which is a very powerful and traditional institution on the cusp of wanting to do something different, to be in a place where I know there are so many talented um, amazing leaders who have been trying to do their very best, yet, um, you know, these terrible tragedies have happened time and time again, particularly with Black men and police in this space, just felt like it was the right place for me to come and join, um, to work with others, um, and to make sure that this very storied um, and successful foundation um, transforms itself from being just a grant maker to that of a change maker by valuing the benefits of proximity, um, using our influence to bridge people across race and geography so that we can get to real solutions, and mm. then to deploy all of our assets, meaning every single asset we have in this foundation with the same kind of rigor we would do with our grants or our investments, how do we deploy all of that for mission? And so that was what really draw, drew me here. And I'm really grateful to be here. I feel very at home. I often say I'm not an alien here. So yeah, that's I, it, it's so powerful, and especially to hear you talk about um, the inspiration that young people gave you and, and how young people and their example pushed you uh, to, uh, to step out of the box. And, and again, I, I, you and I met years ago when you were at Skillman. Uh, I think you were actually heading up the vice president of programs even at mm -hmm. the time when I was mm -hmm. working with National Lisk and and we were working on some of the work that you all were doing in Detroit, which was very, you know, again, leading edge, leading edge work. Um, can you talk a little bit more of, about um, kind of some of some of the strategies? And you, you talked about pushing McKnight mm -hmm. in some different ways and to really utilize and see itself in, in different than just a traditional foundation, traditional grant maker. Can you just talk a little bit more about some of the lessons you've brought and strategies, perhaps, that you've brought from Skillman? to the work at McKnight as, as you're beginning to lead McKnight into this kind of new, new model? Yeah, so I would just say um, at, uh, when I was in Detroit and when I was leading the Skillman Foundation, um, even as VP and then eventually as president, um, there were lots of things that we had to do in that place that are different than most other places because Detroit was really, uh, um, had hit its hardest and darkest days. And so as we were in those moments and trying to find a brighter day, um, and we really had to um, stretch ourselves. And one of the things I learned deeply about that time was that foundations tend to live in a bubble of privilege. And what I mean by that is like, you often hear foundations say things like, well, that's not our role. We only do this. Uh, well, 
Paul, you would never, as a nonprofit leader, have the privilege of being able to say, like, we only do this. We don't do that, right? Like, you, your goal is to solve the problem. If you're mission-oriented, you're going to figure that out, even if it means partnering with different people. It means if you have to shift and you have to adjust, um, you have to do some things that feel a little bit uncomfortable to you, um, grow new muscles. You are going to do that because you want to be problem um, a solution oriented, right? Like you're trying to address those problems um, or you're trying to build a different future. And so what I find is that a lot of times with philanthropic organizations, we held ourselves in a box, which is a very privileged position of saying like, we don't do the work or we're not the people who are making change. Well, actually we're part of that ecosystem and we have to recognize ourselves as a part of a whole and that we sometimes have to shift and change and move. And that's what I learned, I think deeply at Skillman Foundation is that, you know, you have to lead. And um, if you lead with love, then you actually find that you have a lot more flexibility, <laughs> a lot more nimbleness mm. than you ever thought before. Mm. So let me just say um, a couple of things. Here are the things that I learned. One is that um, I often talked about in Detroit that we talked about um, beating the odds. How do we help children beat the odds? How do we help them go up against uh, things that were, um, you know, barriers for them, like poverty or violence or struggling schools? And we very rarely talked about like, what were their aspirations? What were the things that they cared deeply about? Like, what were their goals, their vision? Like, how did they want to... What did they want to go to college? Did they want to start a business? Did they have um, these aspirations that we didn't really talk about? The challenge is, is that when you start talking about beating the odds, you actually are almost um, accepting defeat. And so we started this mantra of saying, like, we're not going to beat the odds. We got to change the odds. Right. And so to me, that's an equity play is like when you start to create systems that actually suggest that everybody that comes out of them, regardless of their um, family circumstances um, and regardless of the hurdles that they face, if we can change those, if we um can change the way that we think that about their success, not as an oddity or an anomaly, but as a given and an expected, then that actually shifts and change the way that you work. The second is that we have to balance content and context. Um, like you, you work national list. I did lots of work nationally. And what I often found, found was that we had these solutions that we had in boxes that we thought that we can land them into places and that those, um, uh, solutions would work. And that's really like content. Um, but a lot of times what we didn't pay attention to was the context. Um, we needed to know like, what are the place, what's the DNA of the place? Like when you learn the DNA of a place and you embrace that DNA, then you can create and adjust the content to fit that place. But you also are leaning into kind of like the things that are unique and asset-based about a place. And that became really important to me. And it's why like even being here in the Twin Cities, I've spent a lot of time just trying to understand the place, the people, mm -hmm. like the ethos of who lives here, why we do what we do and not with judgment, but with curiosity, because mm -hmm. I know that there's gold there and I'm trying to figure out what it is. How do we build Build on top of that, the third. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I, I just did two, two things that you touched on. One, I just so resonate, and we at PPL so resonate with, uh, with that uh, 
changing the odds as opposed to beating the odds. And I, I, I love that language. I mean, we, we really talk about it at, you know, kind of the, the more generic term is an asset-based approach. For, at PPL, our, you know, our, our mission talks about building hope, assets, and self-reliance. Um, and, and the way, and again, part of the secret sauce at PPL is, is helping, believing that the word pride in, in Project for Pride and Living is there for a reason. It's, mm -hmm. it's about dignity. Mm -hmm. And it's about a sense of self-agency. We just talked about it yesterday. We had a wonderful 50th anniversary uh, uh, event that we uh, celebrated PPL's 50 years. Uh, but our founder, Joe Salvaggio, who, uh, who, who, who moved into the South Minneapolis neighborhood and really in kind of very traditional community development uh, kind of model said, you know, let we need to start rebuilding, you know, from 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 the neighborhood, from the people in the neighborhood. But Joe was all about pride, about dignity, um, and we we speak to that a lot. When I speak to our uh, graduating uh, employment and training graduate classes, um, part of what I'll say is is we we expect great things from you, right? We we and 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 our 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 graduates themselves will speak. And say, you know, I knew I had it in me, and and you all helped me mm. find that and and bring that out, bring that to the surface, and so that confidence, sense of self, self respect, right, is is part and parcel of what we try to do here. The other piece that I really wanted to just uh, uh, mention real quickly that you talked about was was kind of implementation and capacity and on the ground capacity, which. You have already heard me talk about here in the Twin Cities as being particularly uh, important. Um, we really, we really value that, and 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 uh, I'm I'm curious as to what your thoughts are. What what kind of capacity are you seeing here in the Twin Cities? What is what are some of your early impressions of kind of uh, the the assets and 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 kind of the the ethos of this place? Oh, good. Thank you for that question. And I also just thank you for bringing up this notion of hope and dignity. And I would add radical love to that. And hopefully I'll get a chance to talk about what radical love is a little bit later. But a lot of times we, you know, you can't necessarily measure hope and dignity um, in the ways that we do. So we actually stop focusing on those things. And those are the things that actually are transformative in people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it's a hope, it's having dignity. Um, and so here's what I, I would say is that I think one of the things that's unique about the Twin Cities is that um, we're a pretty wealthy place. And what I, what I mean by that is that there, we're, we have an abundance. Um, there is a lot of resources that are flowing through our um, cities and through our region. Um, and one of the things uh, that is a consequence of that is that I think we have enough for everyone to go along. So everybody has just enough to be able to try it by themselves. And so what I find is that in the Twin Cities, we leave a little bit on the table um, of possibilities and, and transformation because we're going it along rather than going together. And so that's one of the big things that I've um, been really struck by is that, um, that we could be a little more gritty 
we could be a little more, mm -hmm. um, you know, industrious in terms of rolling up our sleeves, working together in solving some of these issues in a different way. Um, I think we have an abundance of talent. Um, I have sometimes heard people say like, well, we don't have enough talent. I actually think we have an abundance of talent here. It's really about like, how do we align that talent? How do we get that talent focused on an, an ambitious goal? Um, sometimes I think because we have smaller, lots of smaller organizations um, across the region, um, our ambitions tend to be smaller. Uh, so I'll give you an example. One of the things I've heard a lot is um, about how we want to um, increase the number of Black and Indigenous and other people of color businesses. Like we want people to have wealth and to have ownership across the board. Um, we talk about that as if we're just starting something, right? Like that we're just going to start all of the, we're going to invest in all of these startup companies. Um, and, and they're mostly small mom and pop shops, which are all fantastic for the fabric of our community and our society, but they are not going to help people build wealth. They're not going to change the equation in the way that we're talking about where we're, we have deep disparities. And so part of that is like, so now how do we up our ambition a little bit? How do we do that? Because that's extraordinarily important for lots of families, but also how do we figure out how to do joint ventures um, where companies are spinning out, you know, um, businesses all the time, they spin them out and spin them back in. Why aren't we, if the companies who made the commitments around equity, why aren't they trying to do those with um, minority players? Um, how about um, with a lot of the businesses that are in our region across our state that are closing because they're graying out? People mm -hmm. are retiring. Their families don't want to come. Why aren't we putting together pools of money to actually allow um, people of color who have had corporate or work experience to purchase those buildings. They could purchase it as collabor collaboratives if they want to, employee-owned, or they could purchase it just as individuals. But we aren't pushing ourselves to say like, no, people need to have access. Like we have to, equity is not just about equal access. It's actually about really um, reparative access. So we have to actually stretch ourselves to do more to help people have these kinds of ambitions and to reach for them than we would have ever done before. And I think if we do those things, and I think we have the capacity, um, I think we have the capital, um, I think we have the heart for this, but we have to push. I've heard people say like, we're not giving away equity. And I will tell you, you, there's not an entrepreneur ever <laughs> that has actually gotten, you don't give people that, like people put in the time and the energy and we have, we just have so much talent there. So I would just say that that's what I would, I would say, I think the other thing that I think is really finally the other interesting thing I'm finding is that we don't have yet a full narrative about ourselves in this moment. So we've gone through a lot of tragedy mm -hmm. as a region and we're honestly embarrassed by it. And I understand. Um, but at the same time, you know, we were a place where Philando and Dante and Jamar and of course, George Floyd were killed, but we also are the place 
that ignited a movement across the world. So why aren't mm-hmm. we, why are we leaning into the part that is really negative about us instead of leaning into this place? Like we're igniters, like we are the people who change the world and we're going to continue to change the world. So how do we lean into that and create a new narrative for who we are instead of holding onto old narratives that aren't going to serve us well now? And I think that's what one of the things that I've just kind of like, been thinking a lot about about like how do we tell our story and how do we do it with our head um you know straightforward eyes focused um and with pride and with dignity dignity and with humanity and hope so so say again it is it, it's fabulous and and I I'm particularly um how, how do you uh how can the McKnight Foundation um help move that needle. And I want to, I want to pivot here in a minute to, to the groundbreak coalition and, and the work going on there. But, but just as you think about, you know, your, your role as the new leader, how do you think the foundation can help um, make that, that shift uh, to a new narrative to, to really thinking about our work and our capacities and assets in this community differently? Yeah, so that's one a, a big question that I'm asking ourselves, myself, and I'm asking our team about this. I think the first thing is that we have to change our inside of McKnight. We have to change our own narrative about who we are. Um, you know, uh, we are a fully different institution. Uh, I think seven years ago, I put a picture up for our board that looked at all of the leaders and the McKnight Foundation um, at, at the kind of top and the second middle management level, they were all white, not one person color seven years ago. And today, if you look at that, we're probably about half and half um, of leaders of color who are running it. And so, but we still sometimes sit in that old narrative. But here are the kind of things that I think we have to do. I think one um, is that we have to create some space for us as a, or, as a region to actually vision what we're gonna do. Um, we have to actually, um, the things that we're doing really well in response, like we've had a lot of reactions and a lot of things that we've done since, the uprisings happen here. We are not communicating them. We are not talking about them because um, we're still shamed about that. But we mm. need to start talking about here are the things that we've done. How do we craft that? How do we craft it in a way that we're selling it to other people in other places across the country? Um, what's the, you know, I when I think about my experience in Detroit, one of the things that we had to do before we got over the hump and still Detroit has a long way to go, um, but we had to love ourselves, right? Like, and, you know, Detroit has this mo- this motto that says Detroit versus everybody. And part of it was kind of like really this moment where we were saying like, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about us. We think we're dope. <laughs> and so, mm. because we're awesome, um, we're going to lean into that narrative. And I think that part of it for us is like digging into that DNA. I was thinking about this, about like, how do we get um, marketing firms, not just to do some plastic um, story about who we are, but really getting into the roots of who we are as a region that really like when you hear it, it makes you excited because it's like, yes, for you, particularly Paul, as a St. Paul um, uh, boy, like when you hear it, it makes you feel like, yes, that's exactly who I am. Like you've named my DNA. And I think like 
professionals can help us do that. And then we have to like share that story across the nonprofit sector, across corporations. It needs to be weaved into how we attract mm. business into the region. Um, that I think if we can, you know, and we're happy to help on trying to make that investment to be able to tell those stories. And then the last thing I would just say is that we are going to put some investment into asset framing for the region. Mm -hmm. And you've talked about it because PPL does that. But what I would say is a lot of times I hear, even when we talk about equity, it's about disparities, the people who have been downtrodden, mm -hmm. the people who are hurt and harmed. And all of that is true. But I bet you one thing as a black woman, and I'm sure as a black man, you never introduce yourself as a person who's been downtrodden, who's been uh, <laughs> who's been discriminated against. You're going to introduce yourself by your aspiration. Like I'm a, a, a great father. I'm a great businessman. I'm making a difference in my community. And uh, and so we got to shift the way that we talk about it because yeah. you can't get to equity if you're trying to repair some broken mm. stuff that never mm. worked for anybody. We got equity is about building not fixing so how do we build a society that actually allows us um and forces us to think about what 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 does it take to actually enable everyone to change that so that the odds are really changed yeah, right yeah. like and that's the kind of stuff that i think we can do around helping to shift the mindset and the framing of, of the way that we think about these issues yeah yeah I mean, you're just so right about that and and uh you know again uh, uh i I, I, my old, I am a St. Paul boy and I'm a you know, son of Rondo, uh, you know, the historic black community in St. Paul. And, and I actually, just a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, I know, you know, about the Selby Avenue jazz fest, mm -hmm. uh, took place a couple of weeks ago and, and it is just the most positive. It was fabulous. Um, just the, 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 how, how black people showed up, uh, with such pride and such history uh and such positivity right it, it had everything to do with kind of this celebrating the assets and the positives of the neighborhood and again my i come from a very proud tradition you know my 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 people were landowners our landowners in that neighborhood you know my my you know grandfather was a black dentist in in saint paul you know the scientists uh, teachers my dad was a judge um you know so i mean there's there's uh I, I love the way that you talk about needing to kind of reframe uh, that and particularly for, for BIPOC communities uh, to reframe for themselves, but also it, the community kind of at large. The second thing that I really resonated with that you talked about is, is for organizations to walk the walk themselves. And actually that is the work that we started at PPL seven, eight years ago, five, five years before uh, George Floyd was, was murdered. We, we started that journey of of internal cultural competence, internal organizational culture. How do we reflect? PPL staff is now 60% staff of color. We were about 30%. Our management manager team, all of our supervisors, directors, VPs, 45% uh, folks of color. We were about 25%. Our board, 40% folks of color. We were 15% of, uh, of color. But, but in addition to that representation work, uh, we also have really um, worked on cultural competence within the organization and also then moving to kind of how do we show up out in the community and do we walk with community 
as opposed to walking on or for community. And that, that's, that's been a long journey and a painful journey. Uh, the, the more that we've dug into it at PPL internally, actually the more painful it's gotten. Mm -hmm. um, and especially uh, with all of the, the, the police killings and, and, and George Floyd, I mean, the, 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 uh, that, that, that just catapulted the conversation here at PPL and certainly, uh, certainly out in the community. So I wanna pivot a little bit to Groundbreak and just maybe just, can you just talk a little bit about Groundbreak and kind of how that came about and how it's an example of some of, of the kind of broader, you know, leading edge thinking that you're, that you're in action that you're talking about. Well, thank you for that. And I appreciate your honesty about like how hard this work is. I often uh, say equity work is about deconstruction and reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about it, we think about equity and we're like, oh, that sounds so wonderful. Isn't it going to be great to get to equity? Yes, it is. But we got to get through deconstruction, which is re really messy, really hard and really dangerous work. And then we reconstruct into the kind of institutions and places that we want to be. And I think um, part of that is really what drove this notion of groundbreak. Um, so I, when I first came to town, uh, one of the questions I asked around was like, hey, you know, I know the uprisings happen. What can I do? What can the McKnight Foundation do to be helpful? And what people were saying was like, we're going to repair and we're going to rebuild and we need to reimagine. And what they basically kind of said was like, you know, we got the repair, we got the rebuild part, but what we really need to do is to reimagine. And so we started to invest in communities to really rethink what would it look like? Um, if the if these uh, nodes or hubs down um, these cultural corridors were really thriving places where businesses of color um, were there um, and flourishing. And we got back wonderful information, as you can imagine. But here's the thing. We didn't get back any new information. They were asking for capital. And what I became really clear about was that this was a setup. We were setting up community by asking them for what they need and not being prepared to give it to them. And so that was really the impetus behind Groundbreak was that we have to rethink the way capital is going to flow if we want to create equitable, uh, more equitable twin cities um, in a more equitable Minnesota. And so it meant that we had to rethink the way that we couldn't just try and create a fund and invest in these businesses, that we actually had to think about how you get financial institutions to do fundamental change. So yes, we're going to invest. But first, you got to build on fundamental change. And so um, what we and then we also had to have ambition. Right. So I talked about the wealth in the region and the like. And I um, race. I thought originally like, well, maybe we talk about a couple hundred million, maybe five hundred million dollars. And then when we started to look at the scale of the problem and your solutions have to meet the scale of the problem, because if you don't, then you're actually going to, you know, you're underselling yourself and the possibilities. And uh, we started to look at it and we were like, oh, we need really about probably about four to seven billion dollars to be able to move the needle on all of the issues that we've been talking about. That's billion uh, with a B. Billion with a B. And so what we said was like, we can't 
we don't want to, we're not trying to be the solution that we need multiple solutions. So what would be a fair share if we did it? <laughs> and so when we started to look at it, we were like, oh, if we could push a move about $2 billion in capital over 10 years, we would actually get a pretty good head start on a lot of things that we felt like would be um, in, um, great investments in the Twin Cities, like making sure that people of color, particularly Black and Black and uh, uh, Latinx communities could own homes who have this disproportionate number um, uh, where they aren't showing up as homeowners, right? Um, and and what we saw was like, it's 45,000. Like we're below the national average. Um, and actually we already have 45,000 people who are mortgage ready today. Yep, so definitely. how do we actually move them into homes? But moving them into homes isn't just about like going to do what we've always done, figure out like down payment assistance. That's part of it. But the other part of it is, it's like, we got to deal with the supply side too, because we know that there are private equity out there buying up homes that people would normally be able to purchase. So how do we think about this in a more broad uh, way? And also how do we make sure that leaders are actually leading? right? Like not just facilitating, but that we see these problems, we see these challenges and we wrestle with them upfront and hard and say, can we do this? If we can't, who can we pull together to be helping us think about how you deal with the supply side while we're working on, um, uh, you know, the processes of how you get a mortgage and all those different things, which are a lot easier, even though very difficult to solve. How do we help as we, I talked about before on these culture corridors, how do we make sure that we're getting businesses from the full range, from people who want to do mom and pop to those who want to buy companies um, from other uh, owners to be able to um, have built wealth. So we wanted to look at that. And then um, finally, which you know so important is affordable housing, which is the hardest of all of them um, because the financing is, is not conducive <laughs> to be able to help um, on affordable housing. And um, even though we have a supply issue here, we need to get as much affordable housing into the market as we possibly can. But we got to make sure that that is going to much of that is going to the lowest income families as possible, because that's going to actually allow them to go to work, have some stability, um, save their money, and eventually buy a home, right? Like this is about creating prosperity for the region. And one of the things that we've talked about through Groundbreak is that this is about a, this is a strategy that improves the entire region. And it's really a, um, uh, a targeted universalism mm -hmm. strategy where we're basically saying like, look, if we can figure out how to serve those people who have had the most barriers in front of them, but who have great aspirations. If we can solve that problem, then what ends up happening is you create more solutions and you actually create more arm ramps for everyone. Like everybody gets better. If we can figure out how to serve black homeowners um, or black people who wanna be homeowners who have been denied and, um, and sometimes discriminated against, mm -hmm. if we can help serve them better, 
we actually make the system not only better for them, but better for everybody. So every white homeowner goes in and has a better privileged experience. Every Asian person that goes in has a better experience. So those are the kinds of things that Groundbreak is really trying to look at, but it's really about building the civic leadership muscle, which we already have a wealth of, like we're strong, but making sure that it's not atrophying and that we're actually going after the hardest issues, not the easiest issues, because it's very easy to target some money and say, we're going to throw it at that issue and never have accountability to the outcome. And that's what Groundbreak is really about, trying to move us as a region to be able to be accountable for the outcomes and to organize our money where it will have impact. So on the on the financial capital side, uh, again, $2 billion over 10 years, um, who are the likely sources of that? Where, where are you uh, hoping to, to find that capital and and I, again, I, I have opinions about this, but, but yeah. what kind of capital yeah. does, it, does it need to be? Right. So I think that we're looking for people to be open to changing and um, reducing barriers for existing financial tools that they have. And we're asking people to create new financial tools um, that actually meet the need of the problem so that we're actually filling in the gap around um, uh, you know, capital stacks that we need to be able to do different projects and the like. So I think these resources are going to come from um, some of the financial institutions, the banks. I think we can get resources from our insurance companies um, who are interested in doing mission impact investing, um, particularly they're interested in uh, multifamily housing as a strategy because of the long-term return. So we can, so it creates new ways of investment. I think you're going to see resources come from foundations. I think there are lots of equity investors. So lots of equity investors across the country have deeply invested in ESG, but they've been mostly in the E, the environmental. They've all made commitments on the social part of it. Like how do we make sure that everybody, um, that we're basically creating this pluralistic society where everybody has access to um, wealth and opportunity. Um, and so they are looking for ways and places to put resources down um, so that we can move, uh, you know, home ownership and ownership in general, because they know if we don't make investments in people who have been excluded in our society, then we continue to especially as our population shifts and changes and we get more colorful as a country, that gap between the haves and the have-nots actually will um, make our economic system crumble. Literally, it will crumble if we don't figure it out. So they're willing to invest in ways they haven't ever been before, but we have to create the platform for investment where we have investment conferences where people are coming in and saying, these are the kinds of things that we want to make an investment in. And, and, and to, to your point there, I mean, we've been talking at PPL and, and others have been as well that, right, the, the economic competitiveness of the region and of the state of Minnesota, in fact, is tied to those diverse communities, right? So, so the future workforce, not 20 or 30 years from now, but like in the next five to 10 years, right, our future workforce depends on, right, the stability and success of lower income communities of color. Uh, de- the demographics just point that out clearly. And so, so I'm, I've, I've kind of said in the past, you know, I'm done talking about this as a moral issue. This is an economic competitiveness issue. 
and and housing stability to your point and and kind of the the importance of housing i think is is actually quite important and this is again and one of the things that i've been talking about most recently housing is actually it, it's a very low risk investment right and 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 so your point about esg lending and and support in the past and housing there's a strong demand for it right as an investment that that's a good thing um it's it's almost entirely government backed when you produce affordable housing government has funding in different ways in in those in those deals and and therefore you have the reassurance right of 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 government funding in that in that stack of financing and it's a product that we know how to build actually whether nonprofit or or private and so so i've actually argued that housing is actually a low risk it's it's a very stable investment where as an investor as a lender you will get paid back right and we're seeing some of that i know i shared with you uh, our our the project that we're doing at the old wells fargo site at lake and nicollet that that burned in in the uh, in the riots um that project we've been able to secure a multi-million dollar 2% interest loan for 15 years from from uh, from a local uh, uh, financial company multinational actually financial company um that's transformative money 2% is great super low interest what's most transformative about that is 15 years and and having that long of a term allows us to be able to really creatively use that money much more as equity as opposed to a five to seven year loan at six or seven percent. Right. Well, and that's exactly the kind of things that we're asking financial institutions to do, but not just asking them, creating an environment where I what I call cooperation, right? Like mm -hmm. they're competing, but they're cooperating, like they're sharing what they're doing, which actually forces other people to move and shift and shape in a different way. And to bring those models from many of these financial institutions that have a foothold in the Twin Cities, have models and innovations all across the country. They're in different markets. And what we've been saying to them is bring them here. We want them all. We want every single innovation here because that's what's going to allow us. And to your point around housing, I would just say this. If we're talking about Wall Street is picking up housing all over the country, that should tell us that it's a good investment. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so if we have yes, people who yes. are picking up housing and they are looking, for, they're always ahead of the curve in terms of looking for inefficiencies and demand. And so if we don't solve this, we will be um, they people will come and uh, I don't want to say vulture, but it, <laughs> I feel kind of like it, it, it's uh, they will be coming and pulling, extracting from us as a community. Um, versus investing. And so we mm -hmm. it's our time right now, if we don't create the environment for investment, then we will be essentially making a decision that we will be a place to extract yeah, yeah, from. Yeah, and yeah. so that's really what Groundbreak is about. We're investing here, not extracting. Yeah, well, and and my goodness, what a, what a gift um, you have brought to this community uh, and, and your, your, your spirit, your ideas, uh, your innovation. And the pragmatism, um, I really um, appreciate. Um, so I, I got a page of notes here from our conversation. I just want to feedback to you. I mean, I, I, uh, we need to add radical love. We need to create reparative access. We need to be proud that we have ignited 
a movement across the world, right? We need to change the narrative. We have to love ourselves. Um, equity work is about deconstruction and reconstruction. And your, your last comment about cooperation, I think, uh, I think is right on the money. So uh, just so, so grateful for uh, your time and your good thinking and, and really excited to, to work with you um, as uh, at both in Groundbreak, but more broadly in, in the community as, as a whole. So, so thank you, Tanya, really great discussion. Thank you and, for having me. And, and thanks to all of you for, for listening in. Uh, I'm Paul Williams from PPL, and, and this has been the Race, Place, and Policy Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think uh, as well. So drop us a note at communications at ppl-inc.org. And we hope you'll subscribe and sign up for notifications uh, from wherever you get your podcasts. You can always find us on our website at ppl-inc.org. Until next time, be well, be safe. Take care.